Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here at First Free Church. My name is Adam, one of the pastors here, and we're really glad you're here to worship God, celebrate him together, and learn about him too. And that's what this next portion of our service is all about. Normally right now, I would welcome everybody that's watching online, but our internet is not working today because of the storm last night, lightning strike knocked it out. Um, so welcome to all of you who would be watching online but decided to come here this morning. Thanks for being here. I don't know if that's anybody. I'm not going to make you raise your hands, uh, but regardless, we're glad you're here. And I thought it was funny that some of our staff decided to make it part of a Back Together theme. So if you saw the online post, it said that it was part of our Back Together theme that we were cutting the live stream. And so you had to be back together in person. So nice touch there. Uh, but seriously, we are still doing our Back Together theme. There's a Bible reading plan at efree.org slash backtogether. We encourage you to, if you don't already have something you're doing, uh, take advantage of that as your guide to reading through the New Testament this year. And then there's a podcast that goes along with it. I got to record all the episodes for next week, so tomorrow morning we'll kick those off. And every week there's a, a new voice on there sharing with you a portion of the scripture from our Bible reading plan and then some questions to think through to help you consider what that means for your day that day. So I encourage you to take advantage of all of that at efree.org slash back together. And then of course, a part of being back together is just being in community with each other. And one of the things we say around here sometimes is that real church life happens in circles, not rows. We're in rows right now, but you've got to get into smaller circles to really get to know each other well. So I encourage you to get into a group somewhere. You can find out more at efree.org slash groups. Well, we are back in the book of Acts now after taking a break for the Easter season, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 11 today. Before we get in there, I wonder if you'd just bow your heads with me for a minute and ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, we thank you for Luke writing down these stories and accounts so that a couple of thousand years later, God, we can look back and see how you worked and moved in a special way and hopefully learn some points of application for us today. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to share with us. Maybe it's something I'm going to say, maybe not. Maybe it's something else that you want to do through our passage this morning. Uh, but I pray that we would all be receptive to it, Lord, and, and just ready to hear, pushing aside the distractions of the week, whether it's last week or next week or both, and just so that we can focus on you. And in your name we pray, amen. So Acts chapter 11 is where we're going to be, but you can't understand Acts 11 unless you go back to Acts 7. So we're going to give just a little bit of a review of Acts 7 and 8 a little bit, just to make sure we're ready to dive into Acts chapter 11. Back in chapter 7, Stephen is described as a deacon, a man who is full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and he goes before the Jewish council where he gives this incredible history of Israel and through all the time of the prophets and how the prophets along the way were poorly treated, not received well, and sometimes murdered by the leaders in Israel. And then he gets all the way up to Jesus and likens him to those prophets of old and says, you standing in front of me, Jewish council, are murderers because you're the ones who called for the death of Jesus. They did not like that very much, understandably. And so they stoned Stephen to death. So Stephen dies, and you may remember that there was a, a Jewish man standing there watching all the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen. His name was Saul. And Saul got inspired that day, and he kicked off a rampage of persecution against believers, hunting them down all over Israel, bringing them back for trial and murder. And at one point, he describes how he killed or had killed a number of people. And that sends the Christians running for their lives. 
And they just scattered and dispersed all over the place. Acts chapter 8 talks about that, that there's this wave of persecution and they have to spread out all over the place. And just think about that for a minute. Christian families, because of their faith in Jesus, have to pack up all their things as quickly as possible and get out of town and probably never to come back. So their kids, they're having to uproot them and move them and they can't see their friends anymore and they have to go to a different place in this holy city that they love so much. Think about it, Jerusalem had so much meaning for these people because before they believed in Jesus, this was the, the holy city of the Old Testament and the place where, where David was king and Solomon was king and Hezekiah was king and this amazing special city where the temple was and held so much importance to them. But after Jesus, now it's also the place where Jesus walked in to Jerusalem and went into the temple and threw over the tables. And it's where he rode in on a donkey on Palm Sunday. It's where he died and was buried and where he rose again. Jerusalem, this city that they call home, they have to leave and move to another place. And then there's the temple that they have to leave. And they love the temple. It's the place where they've worshiped God for their whole lives. And even after they believed in Jesus, it's the place where every day they would meet on the temple steps and in the temple courtyard to pray together. So they were losing that. They had to lose their community. The Bible says that the community in Jerusalem grew rapidly. And there was a, a large Christian church, a massive church, thousands of people. And they were losing that as they were scattered all over the place. All that amazing growth that they experienced now seemed like it was disappearing as they were separated all over the known world. It was a very dark day in the history of the church. And try to put yourself in their shoes. Imagine if you can what it was like, if, what it would be like for you tomorrow to have to gather as much stuff as you can, pack it in the vehicle and just bug out because you can't be there anymore because it's not safe for you. Your government is literally hunting you down because of something you believe in. But you know, what seemed like a very dark day in that early church turned out to be the biggest blessing. In fact, it was because of that horrible event and Stephen's death and then all the persecution that followed and, and all the scattering of believers that more good was done as a result than any person could have imagined. They just didn't see it yet. That's actually a recurring theme in the Bible. You see tragedy that happens and then God takes something that looks hopeless and does something amazing with it. And afterward, we looking back can go, oh, wow, look at that cool thing God did. But in the moment, if you put yourself in the place of the person experiencing that tragedy, it doesn't seem so wonderful at the time. And you see story after story like that in God's word. It's almost like he's trying to tell us something about trust and faith in him in dark times. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 is where we're going to start. And it says this. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. So most of these Jewish believers, as they're scattered around, they end up going to other places with Jewish people and sharing about Jesus with those Jewish people. And that makes sense. Remember, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And so this is a very Jewish-centered thing right now. The church is mostly made up of Jewish people who, have, who believe in Jesus. And so that's what most of them continue to do. But some of them, some unnamed 
believers, Jewish believers, end up going to Antioch, which was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was actually sort of the Eastern Rome. The Roman people wanted another city like Rome in the East, and so they took Antioch and said, this is a good place, and they gave all the amenities of Rome. It was like another Rome. It had half a million people in it at the time. It was one of the biggest cities in the world, and they had a lot of really amazing things. They had a stadium that could see 80,000 people. That was pretty big. Uh, They had Roman spas. They had a massive theater. There was an epic granite road that ran through the city. There were aqueducts to bring fresh water into the city. And the Roman emperor Titus had actually taken the cherubim that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem and set them up on the city gates as you entered Antioch. So imagine that walking through the gates into Antioch, especially as as a Jewish person dispersed, And if those cherubim were up on the gates at the time and seen that, what was supposed to be in the holy holies of the temple, and now that's over top of the gate of the city that you're entering into, what a crazy thing to see there. But because of the scattering of these people, the gospel ends up being spread to distant regions in the Roman Empire. Because of persecution, the gospel reaches the most unlikely of converts in Antioch, people who aren't even Jewish people. Because of the death of Stephen and many other believers, more people become a part of God's kingdom. So today's message is called, When When Division is Good. When Division is Good. And these believers did not divide because they couldn't get along with each other. They divided because of an outside force that was threatening them. Because of persecution that was coming upon them. And so they were forced to divide, but God ended up in taking it and using it for good. This dark day in the history of the early church became a catalyst for a missions movement that spread across the ancient world. So what I want to show you today are six incredible things that happened because of the division that turned out to be an incredible blessing. Six things that happened, incredible things in the next few verses. And then at the end, I want to share with you our main takeaway for today and some practical application points that I think will help us to to do something with that main takeaway. So six amazing things because of the division and then a main takeaway at the end for us. The first two incredible things that happened because of this division, because of this separation, are number one, God continued to work through these people. He wasn't done with them. And two, a large number of Gentiles turned to Jesus. We see this in verse 21. Luke says, the power of the Lord was with them and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. This is significant, I think, because if I were one of those early believers and I experienced what they saw in Jerusalem with their friends being killed because of their faith in Jesus, with having to move to a distant part of the world they had never been to before, living with people that they didn't understand the culture necessarily, it was a very different way of life for them, I might be tempted to think, I don't know if God's really in this anymore. It wasn't that long ago that all of the people were in this gap period where there was no message from God for about 400 years. It's called the 400 years of silence. And so have they gone into a gap period again? Is God still at work? Is he still doing something? Is this like when Samson's hair was cut and he felt the power of God, or he didn't even feel it, but the power of God wasn't in him anymore? Is this like that? is, Is God's power still in this movement, still in this faith? And here there's confirmation. Yeah, the power of the Lord was still continuing to work in them. And, and I don't know if they, if they felt fear or doubt, but I certainly would have, and wondered, God, are you still going to do something through this? 
because it seemed like that amazing church we were just a part of just got fractured and spread out all over the place. And yet they see very quickly in Antioch, God is still at work. These refugees are now missionaries sharing the gospel with people. And, and don't miss the fact that now all these Gentiles are believing in a Jewish Messiah. What an amazing thing that would be for them to see, for the Jewish believers to see, wow, I'm sharing about my Jewish Messiah with these non-Jewish people, and they're believing in this. God must be at work. And that's exactly what happened. God was at work. There's a little point here for us, I think, that it was the power of the Lord that was working to do this. Because sometimes if you're a follower of Jesus and you go to share your faith with someone, isn't there a little bit of anxiety there where you feel like I've got to say the right thing, I've got to do it the right way, I've got to have all the right answers? And yet that's not how it works at all. God needs a faithful, obedient witness who may not know everything, but they're willing to share, they're willing to be open about their faith, and it's the power of the Lord that's at work in that situation. So it's not all on us to convert someone. This is a work that involves our obedience and willingness to share. It involves the receptiveness and response of the other person and involves God, the power of God at work in that moment. So it's the power of the Lord that is at work and a lot of Gentile people come to know Jesus because of that division and persecution that happened. The next incredible things to happen after the division are number three, the news about this growth of the church far away reaches back to the mother church in Jerusalem, the original early church. They now find out about it. And number four, seeing what God is doing in another part of the world with Gentile believers, that church decides to embrace it and send one of their best, Barnabas, to go evaluate and encourage this new young church. We read about this in verse 22. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Now, think for a moment about those believers back in Jerusalem and what a hard thing it must have been for them to hear that as your church has been scattered and is now in, in a difficult circumstance, there's this new church among Gentiles, not even Jewish people, that is thriving and growing. That, that must have been some difficult news for them to hear. I mean, the church in Jerusalem is where it was at. It was thousands strong. It was thriving. It had all the momentum, all of the energy. And then, like overnight, this wave of persecution just forced them underground, basically. And all these Christians had to leave. And now they're hearing, oh, wow, God is doing something elsewhere. But you know, this church, we, we learned this a few weeks ago when we talked about Peter and Cornelius and how they learned for the first time, wow, God is doing a work among the Gentiles, and we need to get on board with this. And, and the church in Jerusalem did the same thing here. They embraced what God was doing in another part of the world, and they sent Barnabas, the, the wonderful guy Barnabas, to go minister to this new church. And then Barnabas goes and gets Saul from Tarsus. He's still called Saul here because that's his Jewish name, and he hasn't really started his ministry to the Gentiles yet and switched over to using mostly his Gentile name, Paul. 
So Saul comes and Barnabas comes and they spend this time in Antioch with the Christians there. And, and maybe this is where Saul really gets the vision for ministry to Gentiles and kicking off his missionary career with them. One little point of interest is that it's here when Christians are first called Christians in Antioch. Before this, they were called something else. Christians is a, um, it's a derogatory term. Likely, scholars think it's a diminutive phrase that means like little Christ. And the thought is that, that maybe they were originally called this as an insult in Antioch. And then eventually it became a badge of honor to them. And they were like, yeah, I, I want to be like Christ. That's, that's not a bad name. I, I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but, but that might be the way it worked. This is when they were called uh, Christians first. Before this, does anyone know what they were called? They were called followers of the way. It was the way. And so if, if you're a Christian, you're also a follower of the way, which means if anyone ever asks you about something you do as a Christian and it seems odd, you, all you have to say is, this is the way. And some of you will get that and some of you won't. And I'm not going to promote the show. It's just, it is what it is. So number five, the church doubled down on their commitment. The church in Jerusalem doubled down on their commitment to this faraway church in Antioch, these foreigners. And they sent more people to help them. This is in 27. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So it's another example here of the church in Jerusalem not clinging tightly to what they had, but instead saying, you know what? We're going to send you one of our best Barnabas, and then we're going to send you more prophets to, to do more ministry there. So they send these other prophets, including Agabus, to go there. And, and that's when this church in Antioch learns that there's a famine that's coming, and it's going to hit the whole Roman world, which leads to number six, the sixth incredible thing that happens as a result of this division and scattering is that the new church takes up a collection for the old church. Verse 29 says, the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. Now, you may have noticed that the famine was not just in Israel. The famine was for the entire Roman world. And Luke notes that this actually happened during the time of Claudius. So he wants you to know, looking back after the fact, by the way, this prophecy came true. But it wasn't just for Israel. It was for the whole Roman world. So why did the people of Antioch feel the need to take up a collection for the believers in Jerusalem? Well, it's because the believers in Jerusalem were struggling financially. And they would actually continue to struggle financially for as long as we know. It was not easy for them back in Israel. And so... Antioch, which is a fairly wealthy, prosperous, thriving city, probably had a number of Christians there who were well enough off that they could spare something to give. And so they collected as much as they could and sent it to help the Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, the Gentile Christians are raising as much money as they can to send back to help the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. And Saul actually gets to be one of the people that brings that gift back to Jerusalem. In verse 30, this they did entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Think about the full circle picture there. Who kicked off this wave of persecution that spread the Christians all over the world at the time? It was largely Saul. You had the killing of Stephen, and then you had this wave of persecution that was pioneered and championed by one particular man, Saul. 
And then who is the one who comes back in bringing gifts from believers in another part of the world for the very church that he persecuted? It's Saul. What an amazing thing. Think about what that would have been like to be on the receiving end of that, to see Saul coming in, this person who you may have been tempted to hate, and now he's bringing a gift and love and encouragement. Think of what that was like for Saul. Think of the redemptive power of that, for him to be able to come back and not just say, I'm sorry, but say, and I brought help, and I brought something to to make the situation better for you. It's an incredible thing. There's probably a lot more to that that we don't even know about the, the interactions that Saul had as a result of that. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Saul, by the way, would continue to champion the cause of the poor believers in Jerusalem for the rest of his missionary journeys. He mentions it um, all the way through his letters to multiple churches. He talks about how he's raising money to help the poor believers in Jerusalem and Judea. And so there are Regions of churches, he mentions, that are all banding together to give money to send back to Jerusalem. He talks about Achaia, uh, which is a region that included Athens and Corinth, and how those churches were sending money through him back to Jerusalem. And then the region of Galatia, there were several churches there that were also contributing to this. And then Macedonia, which included Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi. These were all places that were giving money throughout Paul's missionary journeys to go back to help the people of Jerusalem. And I think it's worth just parking on that for a minute. The fact that you've got Gentiles and Jews who really did not like each other. But after the gospel, they're now helping each other in mutually beneficial ways. You've got the Jewish believers saying, we're going to send out our best speakers and communicators and leaders to go minister to you and influence you. And, and they, they taught large crowds in Antioch there. But they came from Jerusalem. And then you've got the believers in Antioch and then later in other parts of the world who would say, you know, those Jewish people that we used to laugh at and sneer at and call names, we're actually going to take up money for them and help them out now. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of believing in Jesus. It transforms you from the inside out, makes you into a new person, and you see it on display right here. Only the gospel can bring about that kind of transformation. And it actually reminds me of how every year we take up a collection to do something similar, to help people in another part of the world who maybe don't have the same resources. And we're like that church in Antioch, where we say, what can we do to give more to provide for other people around the world? We did it with Huamachuco, Peru, and the church plant there. We raised all the money needed to plant that church and then some to be able to have extra ministries. And then we sponsored 150 kids in the area so that they could continue to be ministered to on a regular basis. By the way, this is your reminder to write letters to those kids uh, because that really does matter. I hope you've been getting some back. Ours have been trickling in a little bit. Ours are younger kids, so it's harder to get letters as frequently from them. Uh, But make sure you're writing them letters. It's why we raised all the money for the Samburu tribe in Kenya to be able to have motorcycles and Bibles so they could be empowered to go out and start new churches and spread the gospel. In fact, they're trying to spread the gospel to a neighboring tribe that's actually warring with them and has actually recently killed one, of their, one or two of their members and stolen a lot of their things. So it's a very complicated situation. And, uh, and you'll get to hear from uh, a team that went from First Free Church to that tribe recently, soon, in the services, so you can kind of understand what they were doing there. And they saw the motorcycles that we provided. But we're being like that church in Antioch, 
making sure we're giving generously so that we can provide for believers and hopefully soon to be believers in other parts of the world. Um, now, Saul later wrote to the Corinthian church something related to this as he's talking about taking up collections and, and giving to people. He says, since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. Now, that verse is kind of the local church in a nutshell, isn't it? You've got your people that are all about faith. You've got gifted speakers. You've got knowledge. You've got enthusiasm. So it's not just knowledge, but putting that knowledge into action, enthusiasm for doing something and love, but also excel in this gracious act of giving, he says. So what are we gonna take away from this passage today, learning about what the church in Antioch did for the church in Jerusalem and vice versa? Well, I have one main takeaway that I hope you'll remember. Maybe you'll write it down today. And this is kind of a, a very personal takeaway that might be really relevant for you right now or it might be relevant sometime in the future. But the main takeaway is this. The darkest moment may be God's way of doing a new and wonderful thing. In fact, let's make that more personal. Your darkest moment may be God's way of doing a new and wonderful thing. It's hard to see that at the time, but we have to believe that. We see example after example in scripture of where God is gonna do something incredible through something that to us right now looks terrible. And I've been in some of those situations where it seemed like all hope was lost or where there was a health issue or a loss of a loved one or some other situation taking place and you just feel so miserable and discouraged and depressed. And we need to remember that God is at work in ways that we don't understand to do new and wonderful things, even with our darkest moments. Now that is not to say that that, that bit of knowledge is some kind of a silver bullet that's gonna make it all better right away. Or that if you just have enough faith and believe hard enough that, that in a certain time frame, like a week, God's going to make everything better. We don't know how long the storm is going to last. It could be a week. It could be a month. It could be a year. There are stories in the Bible where people waited decades for the answer to whatever they were asking God to solve. We just don't know. Which is why in our darkest moments, sometimes what doesn't help that much is for someone to come alongside us. And, and give us some sort of a nice platitude or, or a, a quick little phrase that's supposed to help us feel better. And it's like, well, I don't want to feel better right now. This is not fun. But somewhere deep inside, we've got to remember, God's going to do something new and wonderful for this, even though I can't see it right now. We've got to have that understanding. A lot of the stories in the Bible, I think, are meant to communicate that to us. Hey, have faith, trust. I know it feels miserable right now. And maybe you have good reason to feel miserable right now, but understand that God is gonna do something new and wonderful with us in his timing. We just don't know when it might be. So remember that the darkest moments can be God's way of doing a new and wonderful thing. And then I wanna give you a few practical application points that come out of this. What are some things we learn specifically from this story of what happened in Jerusalem and Antioch and their generous giving back to the Jerusalem church? that might be some really practical takeaways for you and me. And I'm gonna give you four of them. Maybe one of these will apply to you, maybe four will, maybe none will, but we're gonna go through them because I'm sure they'll be helpful for some people here. The first one is to be slow to judge and quick to pray. Slow to judge and quick to pray. Be slow to judge God. 
I know in those dark moments when, it, when you're, you're really in a valley of life, it's easy to go, God, why did you allow this to happen? Think about the believers who loved Stephen. This was a guy who was just beloved by the people and he dies and he's not even that old yet. And you're going, God, why did you allow this to happen? And judging God for something that God knew, he was operating at a much higher level than anyone understood. This is gonna kick off a wave of persecution in the church. That doesn't sound good, God. I don't like your plan. But that's going to lead to thousands and thousands of people trusting in Jesus as a result. And do you think that Stephen and those other martyrs were up in heaven and hearing about the people getting saved and going, ah, but I still wish I could have had a few more years on earth? Probably not. They were probably thrilled. And the reason why I think they were thrilled is because the Bible says that the angels in heaven rejoice over one soul repenting and coming to Jesus. And my guess is that if the angels in heaven are throwing a party, the other saints in heaven are probably aware of it. And probably like, what's, up, what's going on? What's the commotion? Oh, another person got to say, wow, and it was because I died. Okay, fine then. I think they were probably okay with it. Be slow to judge God. Be slow to judge other people. You know, I am sure there were Christians that really struggled in their hatred of Saul. Really struggled. Even after he supposedly became a Christian, they were wondering, is this legit? They were, they were skittish about him, and I get that, and I understand that. But how could they understand what God was doing in his heart? How could they understand that he would become what we now look back as to, at today as the greatest missionary of all time for Jesus? We think back on Saul or Paul with these wonderful thoughts of who he was as a person. But at the time, he was viewed as a killer, as a menace as anti-God. And so we need to be careful that we don't put ourselves in that position of, judge, of judgment against another person. It doesn't mean we don't evaluate their fruit and whether or not what they're doing is good or bad. That just means, are we passing judgment on who they are and thinking, well, God can't do anything with this person. They're too far gone. Because Saul is certainly an example of the opposite. And then we need to be quick to pray. Quick to pray. James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, that there are times where God is willing to answer our prayers and do something wonderful, and he withholds that only because we're not entrusting that to him. The way he puts it is, you have not because you ask not. In other words, he's saying, there are certain things God is willing to do, but because you're not entrusting it to God in prayer, he's holding off on doing that. You need to learn your lesson. You need to learn to trust in God. You need to learn to put this before him and not try to control it on your own, but, but leave it before the feet of God. And then guess what? There are certain things he's willing to do. Now, that is not a guarantee that if you do pray about it, God's going to do whatever you ask. No, what it's saying is, what James is saying is, there are things God is willing to do. You don't know what they are necessarily, but he's waiting for you to ask. So pray. Maybe there are things that you are wishing, hoping would be different, would change. Maybe it's a person, a relationship, a situation at work or school or something going on that you feel like this is, some, this is a dark time for me. And are you turning that over to God in trust and saying, Lord, I trust you with this. I don't know when it's going to be resolved. But Lord, if you're willing, would you do this? Would you resolve this? Would you solve this situation? And he may not do it right away. But James tells us sometimes the reason he doesn't or doesn't do it as quickly as we want is just because we're not praying. So keep praying. Number two, be open to change when it doesn't go against God's word. There are three different kinds of change. There's 
a moral change, or we could say a biblical change, that's when something is, is good. It's, it's uh, in God's word and promoted there. And then there's immoral change, which is when it's against God's word. It's a bad change that shouldn't happen, and, and the Bible speaks clearly about it in some way. And then there's amoral change, which is it's not necessarily good. It's not necessarily bad. It's just different. And what we often have a hard time with is confusing which kind of change we're dealing with. There's a lot of change that's amoral change. In other words, it's not naturally good or bad. There's no Bible verse that directly speaks about this, but it may feel off to us. It feels different. It goes against our nostalgia. It goes against what we're used to. And so we confuse that amoral change for immoral change, and we think that our feeling off about it is somehow maybe the Holy Spirit telling us this isn't good, this isn't right, but we don't know that. For the church in Jerusalem, this was a weird, different time period they were entering. And it seemed strange to them, and they weren't sure about it. But pretty quickly, they got on board and recognized God's doing a new thing, and we're going to embrace it. And you know what? You and I are facing all kinds of new things right now. We're facing changes in our culture and in our world. And some of those changes are moral and biblical. There are things happening right now that you see. In, in media and online and in people's hearts and movements that God is in that are moral, biblical, good changes. And we get behind that. And there are a lot of changes we see that are immoral. And we say, that's not good. The Bible speaks to that directly. This should not be happening here. That is not God's design. But then there are also changes that are amoral. And we need to be cautious about judging too quickly the change and saying, well, I don't like this. Therefore, it must be wrong in some cases, I don't like this, and I just, I just don't like this. And I get that, and there's fine. There's nothing wrong with having preferences. But we need to be open to change because maybe God's going to work through that new thing that we're scared about as long as it's not against God's word. Number three, embrace people who are different. Embrace people who are different. God may be doing a great work in their hearts, and you just don't know it yet. It must have seemed like a long shot for those Jewish believers in Antioch to think that they were going to come in as refugees and share about their faith in a Jewish Messiah who lived in Israel a long ways away. None of these people ever met him or heard about him and that they would actually believe and become followers, that they would actually join them in following Jesus. What a crazy thing. And yet the power of the Lord was in it. God was at work. And so they saw incredible fruit from it as they were faithful and shared. And so you have to embrace people that are different from you. The Jews and Gentiles, let's remember, were really against each other, did not like each other, had a lot of negativity between the, the two of them and friction. And yet the Jewish refugees overcome that and graciously share the best thing they have, faith in Jesus. And the Gentile believers actually join them and become a part of them. And there are probably people in your life that you think, man, I don't care for them. <laughs> they annoy me. Or they're an enemy of mine, and yet maybe God is doing a work in their heart that you just don't know yet. What would an act of love and graciousness and kindness do to further the testimony of faith with those people when all you really want to do is either ignore them or say something mean to them? So be open to what God may be doing with people who are different than you. Number four, be as generous as you can with what God has given you. Be as generous as you can with what God has given you. And I actually think this is a major part of this story. To see it come full circle. And now these believers in Antioch, 
who don't know the people back in Jerusalem at all, other than the ones that have come to them, are getting as much money as they can together. The Bible says they got as much as they could and sending it back to that church in Jerusalem. They were so generous with their finances to those people. Remember, Paul said to the church in Corinth, some of you excel in your faith. Some of you excel in communicating God's word. Some of you excel in knowledge. Some of you excel in enthusiasm. And hopefully all of us are growing in those things. But then he says, I also want you to excel in this gracious gift of giving. So let's talk about that for a minute. What does it take for us to excel in this gracious gift of giving? One of the the things that a lot of people do uh, to try to excel in giving is to say, I'm going to take a percentage of my income, and that's going to be the the giving that I use. And a lot of people start with a baseline of 10%, because in the Old Testament, there was a tithe, which meant a tenth, 10% of your income. That's actually not the total of what they would give. Actually, it's more like 23%. The tithe was one of the gifts that the Jewish people in the Old Testament would give. But the New Testament doesn't give us a figure. It just says, God loves a cheerful giver. So give generously, give cheerfully. The percentage is between you and God. I think it's, it's a good idea to start with a 10% as a baseline. Probably somewhere between 10 and 23% is, is an ideal range. But you need to set aside a part of your income to be generous and giving with other people and ministries and things like that. I'm not just talking about this church. I'm just saying we as followers of Jesus need to recognize that our money, our resources are not really ours. And God has commanded us and invited us to be a part of what he's doing by giving generously and graciously. And and what did Paul say? I want you to excel in this gracious gift of giving. And so how do we do that? Beyond just saying, well, you know, set aside a portion of your income, which, by the way, Paul actually says at one point, set aside a portion of your income every week. Um, Beyond that, how do we do that? Here's the problem. 71% of Americans today say that they can't give because of the debt that they're in. Right? So how do we excel in this gracious gift of giving if we feel like I can't give because I'm in debt? And how long have you been in debt? And how much longer will you be in debt? And so you're not able to do the thing that God has commanded you to do because of the debt. That's a problem. 71% of Americans say they can't give because of the debt. So I want to just spend a few minutes on this at the end here because I think that there's a valid um, segue here to talk about biblical finances just for a minute. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. If you want more information about it, there's a series on our website called The Almighty Dollar that will go into more detail. And there's a course here that we run every now and then called Financial Peace University. And uh, if there are enough people that want to go through that, we'll do it again. But I'm going to just give you some of the principles in a nutshell, because if you're going to excel in this gracious gift of giving, if you're going to be like the church in Antioch that that gave everything they could to help other people and were commended for it, then we've got to make sure we're handling our money the right way, because it's really God's money. We're just stewards of it. So let me give you the high level version of this. Number one, always spend less than you make. And I know that sounds simple, but that is very hard for us to do. Because the world makes it very easy to spend more than we make. I mean, all you got to do is put on a credit card. You'll probably have enough money by the end of the month to pay it off. And then when it doesn't happen, the interest occurs and that gets bigger. And eventually, before you know it, you've got ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 of credit card debt. And it just snowballs from there. The average person living, the average adult living in Missouri has $6,500 in credit card debt. And maybe some of you hear that and think that's, wow, that's a lot. And some of you hear that and think, oh, that's nothing compared to what I've got. We have a major problem with credit card debt in our country and in our state. That's actually not that far behind. I think in California, it's 7,500. So I mean, Missouri is not that far away. 
from California, which is one of the, the most debt-ridden debt states in the country. It is the most debt-ridden state in the country. So we've got to get a handle on that. And the way we do that is by spending less than we make. And if you use a credit card, number two is make sure you pay it off every month. Don't allow the interest to keep building and, and rolling over and, and growing that debt to be bigger and bigger. You've got to be able to pay it off every month. If you cannot pay the credit card off every month, then you probably shouldn't be using a credit card. And you switch over to a debit card so you still have that plastic because sometimes you need that and it's more convenient. But that way you don't have the temptation of being able to spend more than you can actually pay off. Now, for me personally, I do use a credit card because I get rewards points from that. And I never, I treat my credit card like a debit card. I never spend more than what I've got in the bank to pay it off right away. It is never a, I'm going to pay this now and it's more than I can afford, but I'll pay it back later. No, it's, it's used like a debit card and, and I just get extra rewards from that. But if you can't do that, debit card is the way to go. This one might be a little controversial, but I really believe it's true. Your number one priority actually should be giving. A lot of people say, once I get out of debt, then I will start to give. And I just don't, I don't think that's true or biblical. I think if giving is a command of God, then we start giving now, even if it's a small amount. And we are obedient now as we try to also get out of debt. And so your number one priority, in my opinion, should be before I do anything else, before I even pay for my food, I'm going to make sure that a portion of my income is set aside for giving. Because this is a command. This is something that God has said I need to be doing. And maybe that means I have to eat a little differently. Maybe that means I don't buy clothes as often. Maybe that means I sacrifice in other areas or ways. Maybe that means one less trip a year. I don't know. But I'm going to make sure that giving is a priority in my life first. And by the way, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about how God blesses those with more resources who give. And I'm not trying to say that's a promise that if you put in your seed money, he's going to give you a bunch more. No, I'm just saying that Paul says that God loves to bless people when they're generous givers. And so my challenge to you, if you're one of those 71% that's been saying, I'm not going to give, and I'm not, again, I'm not talking about this church, I'm talking wherever you give. I'm not going to give because I'm in debt and I'll wait till I'm out of debt. I, my challenge to you is try it. Start giving and see if God doesn't bless that in your life. I've never heard of anyone taking up that challenge and, not, and saying later, oh man, I really regret that. I wish I wouldn't have given more. I've never heard that before. And so it just seems like every time people who are generous givers, God continues to bless them and give them what they need. After making giving a priority, your next priority needs to be an emergency fund. 57%, as of January of 2023, 57% of adults in this country say they could not handle a $1,000 emergency. So that means they don't have access to that money right away if they were to have a $1,000 emergency hit. And, and, and that's just the norm for the majority of Americans in this country. So you've got to build an emergency fund. Three to six months. You look at your lifestyle. What's it cost you to live for three to six months at whatever rate is appropriate? And set that aside. And that's your emergency fund. And that sits in an account that bears interest. Whether it's a money market or a savings account or, or a CD ladder or whatever you end up putting that in. That's in somewhere where you have relatively quick access to it if something goes wrong, or at least a portion of it, you have immediate access to it, and you can handle those emergencies. And that is not the cool toys fund. I know it's tempting you. You have that pocket of money sitting there to be like, and then this new thing came out, and now I'm going to go use my emergency fund. for that. No, that sits untouched as an emergency fund in case something happens. That's just being wise. That's being a wise steward of financial resources. And then the next priority would be get out of any bad debt. 
make getting out of bad debt a major priority for you. There's a lot of different thoughts on what constitutes a bad debt and a good debt. I'm not gonna go into that here. We don't have time for that. But bad debt for sure would be anything with a high interest rate. Credit cards, holding over a credit card balance, that's a bad debt. A lot of personal loans are bad debts. A lot of car loans are bad debts. Things that just keep charging you so much more interest than whatever value they're providing for you. And so you've gotta figure out all your minimum payments, make sure you make those every month, and then take whatever your highest interest rate debt is and throw everything you can at that thing until it is paid off. Get out of the bad debts. And if you're living below your income, and if you're giving generously, and if you're out of bad debts, then what you need to look at is how am I investing for the future? The Bible says in Proverbs, look at the ant. Look how he prepares and gets ready for the future. And so we need to do that. We need to be wise like the ant and say, all right, I'm going to now prepare and plan for the future. After I've made giving a priority, after I've gotten out of bad debt, after I've got my emergency fund in place and I'm ready, now I'm ready for the future. That's just, that's just that in a nutshell. If you want more information on that, Go to the website, look at the Almighty Dollar series. There's a much bigger array of information there with all the biblical references and, and why we believe this is actually God's way for managing our finances. I don't know uh, who here today needed that, but statistically speaking, there are probably some people who that, that specific message is what God had for you today. Like you need to manage the resources God has given you well, and you need to be a generous, gracious giver. But for everybody, I hope that your main takeaway today is whatever the dark moment is that you're going through in life, remember that God will do something new and wonderful with it in the end. He has promised in Romans chapter eight to work all things out for good to those that love him. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we can look to this story of Stephen and we can look to what happened with Saul and realize, wow, years later, you can look back and see God was doing an amazing thing through that story. You just have to hold on. You just have to have faith. God is sovereign. He will see you through it, and he will do something amazing with it. Continue to trust him for that, even in those dark storms of life. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me right now? Father, uh, thank you for Luke writing down these words for us. Thank you, Jesus, that, that you give us so much insight packed into these stories that are fun to read and understand and dive into, but they've got these principles in them that we need to learn from, Lord. I pray that you would help us to do two things coming out of this message. One would be to remember to be gracious and generous people, like the people in Antioch and Corinth and Philippi and all these other churches, who because they had the ability to, and because they were evidently wise with their finances, they were able to be generous givers and gracious to help other people in need. Lord, as we prepare for another Take Back Black Friday offering in a few months here, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts for that. And make us ready to be a part of giving to wherever we end up um, deciding to make that a project for us, Lord. And then I also pray for those who are experiencing a dark moment in their life right now, Lord. I don't know what exactly you have for them or how long the storm will last, but I do know that you have promised to work all things out for good. So I pray that you would give comfort and reassurance to them. I pray that you would remind them that you are in control, that you will take care of them, that you are faithful through everything that happens to us and you will work it out for good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.